It's September 9th. A good Thursday to you. This episode of Real Talk is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. I'm very excited. As a matter of fact, later today, I have a chance to connect with the Bitcoin Well's founding CEO, Adam O'Brien, building something incredible out of their head office in our home city of Edmonton, Alberta. But they got Bitcoin ATMs across the country. You're going, Bitcoin, Bitcoin ATMs? What? What is that even about? I ran into a real talker by the name of Isabella yesterday, and she said, hey, I was talking to my girlfriend and I. She said, we don't know a lot about Bitcoin. She says, but we do know that when we're going to get into it, we're going to do it through Bitcoin. Well, because of real talk, I said, that's a smart move, Isabella. I trust him with my questions. You can trust him with yours. Figure out what's right for you on this new landscape. You can find him under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to check in with the managing editor of The Hill Times. Uh, Sherelle Evelyn is going to join us. Uh, it's an independent newspaper you may subscribe based out of Ottawa, uh, covering the ins and outs of Parliament Hill and, and uh, the goings on of federal politics. Of course, last night, the French language leaders debate tonight. Uh, it'll be the English language leaders debate. And of course, we'll have plenty to talk about uh, with Sherelle when she makes her Real Talk debut coming up in just under 10 minutes time, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, looking forward to connecting with Basim Youssef, uh, producer Sarah Hoyle's this guy's a big deal when it comes to political satire. What a story. I mean, millions of Twitter followers and a hugely popular show of his own. Yeah, the, the show actually went off the air because of how much pressure it was experiencing. Um, you know, he got arrested and then he had death threats. So he's uh, but that hasn't stopped him. He the can, show was kind of the first of its kind in the in the Middle East with regards to kind speaking of, truth to it power. It was the first. Yeah. Um, yeah, very much. And, you know, with a tongue in cheek, of course. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> I was I was find that uh, comparisons when someone will compare someone to someone else and say they are the yeah. Wayne Gretzky of whatever you know people are calling this guy this guy's the the John Stewart of the Arab world that's pretty high praise absolutely and he's pals with John Stewart he's actually been on the Daily Show with uh, Trevor Noah as well as you know the the prede- predecessor yeah uh, John Stewart so but yeah John Stewart's kind of like I'm not as good as this guy <laughs> <laughs> amazing well we're, we're looking forward to that conversation uh, that's coming up in about uh, uh, well, we'll call it about 40 minutes time from right now. And then uh, very much looking forward to uh, we've, we've been looking forward to speaking with Paralympian Caitlin Wright for a long time. Uh, but she had to get something out of the way first, which was, of course, the Paralympics. And uh, she proudly represented her country, a member of Canada's women's sitting volleyball team, which looks to me like an impossibly difficult sport. Sam, I saw you ingesting some of the, the photos that we have of Caitlin in action. And I, 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 I could perceive here through the plexiglass admiration in your eyes i'm not good at volleyball at the best of times and i can't <laughs> imagine doing it seated like it just when i i mean so many paralympic sports i look at them and i mean like so you're taking a sport that i already suck at and you're making it harder <laughs> and then you're competing on the world stage it's it's incredible well caitlin and her teammates uh, did a fantastic job they uh, fourth place finish at what was her second paralympic game she was also competing for Canada in Rio in 2016. Here's the deal. So they come home fourth place without a medal. And uh, I like her perspective. I mean, we'll get this from her when, when we talk to her coming up in you know an hour and a half or so from now. But uh, she basically said, listen, their goal was to finish top four. 
I mean, obviously, you'd want to win gold, obviously. That's yeah, why that's you really, show up. You got to start with you that. You start with the gold, you know, and, and kind of. But she says, listen, the goal was top four. We finished top four. We achieved our goal, which I think is great. But she made a, she made waves. She and her teammates um, wearing these T-shirts. Let's make the Paralympics a household name. And I know that there was a lot of talk around these Paralympic Games. There seems to be more discussion around these Paralympic Games every time, every mm. every two or four years. Uh, when people start saying, you know, the games need more respect. They need to be talked about more. They need to be better celebrated. The athletes stories need to be better told. One solution might be running the games concurrently, right? Yeah. Not running the Paralympics after the Olympic Games. We'll have to ask Caitlin about that. But I know a lot of people, real talkers included, were emailing us about that during both the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Yeah, the idea that Paralympics is not paraplegic. It's parallel. Yeah. So if it's parallel, then let's actually like make it parallel yeah simultaneous so i'd be curious where real talkers will land on that but i mean this is just a great opportunity to check in with caitlin right and i'm looking forward to that so that, that'll be coming up uh if you're listening to us live on the mixler audio app good morning to you if you're watching us live on youtube that interview will be around noon eastern time around 10 o'clock mountain and if you're listening on the podcast thank you for that then you can find it in about 90 minutes from now of course we're going to be getting into some of the the key moments um in, in my mind probably the biggest or most significant moment really didn't have a lot to do with politics in the post debate scrum last night when liberal leader justin trudeau fielded a question from the rebel we're going to be featuring that um it just seemed to be so perfect for a weekly feature that we bring you every Thursday. And so you'll hear that video and my thoughts on it coming up in just a moment. Right now, let us quickly remind you this Saturday, if you happen to live in and around the Edmonton area, my wife, Carrie, and I, you know, Carrie's at CarrieSkelton.com. She's a lifestylist. Well, she and I are proud to be working together. We're, we're throwing a bit of a tailgate party and we'd love for you to join us. That's right. We're partnering up with the villages at DeRoche. This is the DeRoche Villages Show Homes. Absolutely stunning. We know there are some sensitivities right now, obvious ones. People want to kind of keep their distance, right, for obvious reasons. People want to know that when they're out and about that it's going to be safe. That's why we're scheduling viewings of these show homes by Daytona, Jamin, Landmark, and Pacesetter. It's coming up this Saturday, September 11th. The tailgate runs from noon to 4 and if you're one of the first 75 people to register to check out these beautiful new builds, we're going to put four tickets in your hand to that night's matchup, the Battle of Alberta on the gridiron, your Edmonton Elks hosting your Calgary Stampeders. Heck, I don't know where you're listening from. It's one of the key CFL battles. It's going to be a great game. And the first 75 people to register to check out these beautiful show homes at DeRoche Villages are going to get four tickets each to sit in the family fun section. You go, well, how do I register? It's simple. Just go to my Twitter profile at Ryan Jesperson. I have it pinned right at the top. Just follow the links. We would love to see you there on Saturday, September 11th from noon to four. Our friends at Friesen Brothers are handling the tailgate eats for us. We're going to have some beautiful rigs there from St. Albert Dodge. All the real talk partners are getting together on this one. It's going to be a great event, and we hope to see you there this Saturday, September 11th. Well, the French language leaders debate last night, English language debate tonight. And of course, this is a big deal. Millions of Canadians will pay keen attention, maybe not to the entire debate, but to the, some of the key points. 
the platforms that are being rolled out by these party leaders, many of them hoping to, of course, build on momentum from last election or in some cases recover from setbacks. Sherelle Evelyn is managing editor of The Hill Times, of course, keeping a keen eye on this, along with her team at the independent Ottawa based newspaper, making her debut on Real Talk this morning. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Cheryl, when you take a look at, at the debate, the uh, French language, English language, English language debates, how, how, how much sort of strength do you put into these ones? How, how much of a player is debate night, do you think, when it comes to Canadians determining how they're going to vote? Well, I guess it depends on which Canadians you're talking about. If you're talking about people who are paying really close attention to politics, um, I'd say, you know, debate's run pretty high in, in terms of the election campaign calendar, um, but also for the people who are only just now tuning in. I mean, the election was kicked off in the middle of August. People may not, may are still trying to, you know, enjoy their summer vacation and they're only now just t- tuning in. So for uh, a lot of people, this is going to be the first real look that they're getting at the leaders. And this election is really close. The polls are saying that the Liberals and the Conservatives, they're neck and neck. And these debates are an opportunity for them to kind of put themselves out there and show why one of them is better than the other. Whether they've actually done that, I think, is another uh, question altogether. And I don't quite think that uh, that distinction was you know, really made over these last uh, couple of debates that have happened so far. It's as if I need to tell you, it's been a bit of a running theme. People saying the exact same thing. They're not convinced that that Justin Trudeau has convinced Canadians that the time was right to call an election or that an election was necessary. I mean, he insisted that it's it's essentially the most important election since, you know, the, the, the wrap of World War Two. Uh, I know that there's obviously a lot of talk about COVID-19. Canadians have resoundingly said, I mean, we'll review the results of our Y Station question of the week coming up in a few minutes, Sherelle, after we speak with you. And you'll see that well, a bit of a spoiler here that, that Real Talkers en masse, more than a thousand that chimed in, said that climate change or climate is their biggest issue bar none. I know a lot of people are prioritizing economic recovery here. Those weren't necessarily the main talking points last night. There was talk on childcare. There was talk on, on reconciliation. What really jumped out at you last night in the French language debate? Well, not a lot. It was it, it's the debate format. I don't think really provided for um, a lot of opportunity to dig into some of those really substantive issues that people watching want to hear about. Um, there was a lot of you know rapid fire uh, questions and answers from the moderators and journalists to the leaders. Um, you know, there was a couple standout moments. Obviously, the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, and his campaign, they had just released the costing of their platform, you know, just a couple of hours before the debate happened. And kind of one of the big takeaways there was the cut to the Liberals' childcare plan, uh, the $10 per day childcare within the deal that they've negotiated with eight provinces and territories. And so there was an opportunity there for, uh, you know, the leaders to kind of needle Mr. O'Toole about this plan and, you know, saying how it wouldn't really help Canadian families. His argument, of course, is that, you know, their plan is going to help all families with the tax credit that they're proposing. Um, But I mean, like you said, talking about climate change, there was a a section in the debate last night uh, where there was a question from an 11 year old uh, talking about how he was worried about climate change in the future for his children which is jarring to think about an 11 year old thinking about his children. Um, But, you know, even that didn't really dig into uh, some of the the big issues that are 
that, you know, think that people would be worried about. They talked about, oh, you know, we're going to cap emissions and and go back and forth. But there wasn't really, a, I, I don't think, a real uh, deep discussion on issues like that. Um, and of course, I think one of the biggest moments that people are also talking about today is just, um, you know, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau kind of blowing up a bit about at uh, uh, Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet about, you know, who has monopoly over, yeah. you know, speaking for Quebecers. <laughs> Yeah, the whole who speaks for Quebec thing is very interesting. And, and and I've seen different takes on that. I'm really curious to pick your brain. I mean, you're you're talking to us from Eastern Canada. You maybe have more of a keen sense on on how that can resonate. I've seen some pundits suggest that 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 Trudeau standing up uh, to the Bloc Québécois leader could actually really resonate with with people that might potentially vote conservative, people that might might consider reallocating their vote there. I, I, I'm not sure whether or not that might work. Another Quebec storyline, of course, to follow would be Aaron O'Toole, I mean, essentially saying he'd like to blow up, if I can paraphrase, blow, blow up the, the child care agreement with Quebec, which may resonate elsewhere in Canada, seems to me to be risky business in a province where when conservatives have seen success in elections, it's due in part to the fact that they've done all right in Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. And Quebec, you know, for anybody who wants to form government, you need Quebec. And that's why you see a lot of essentially pandering to Quebec and, and you know, kissing the ring of their Quebec premier, Francois Legault, and, and saying, you know, we are going to do this for Quebec and we respect Quebec as a nation and Quebec has the right to do whatever Quebec wants to do. Um, you, you hear that a lot during the, the French debates. You're probably going to hear that a little less um, tonight during the, the English debate. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The, in Quebec, childcare has been essentially the model that uh, the Liberals are basing some of their, their child care proposals on. And so to say now to uh, Quebec, um, well, you've been promised this money and you're going to get just the first year of it, then we're going to take it away and you won't be able to do anything with it like you planned. It's not going, it's not going over very well so far. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I know that the Premier was up uh, speaking just this morning about uh, that conservative plan um, so far, the reviews aren't great, but he hasn't yet, you know, turned around and, and endorsed any other party, so to speak. He's not saying, you know, in that case, everybody should vote liberal. Some of the I mean, some of the themes I've seen around, you know, people's perception of the conservative campaign to this point is that Aaron O'Toole's done a pretty decent job of running what what appears to be more of a moderate campaign than I think some people expected. Uh, and I think most especially contrasted with his leadership campaign, right, securing the support that he needed from the grassroots, most especially on the prairies to become leader of the party in the first place. Would you concur? What's your take on the on the conservative campaign and, and the themes and the tone of it to this point? Yeah, it's definitely um, a different tone than definitely the 2019 uh, campaign under Andrew Scheer when he was leader. Um, it's definitely more conciliatory, um, wanting to, you know, grow that conservative base, talking about bringing people in, um, lots of outreach to different uh, demographics um, and backgrounds, uh, lots of outreach to, you know, unions and, and workers and trying to bring them into the fold. Um, not a very, I wouldn't say it's, it's not an angry campaign, uh, despite what some of the, the early messaging would have you believe when you see Aaron O'Toole out on the on the hustings, you know, he's he's very, you know, even keel uh, and calm, he, but he is also very vague. So I think that's part of the reason why uh, the Conservatives have been able to, you know, reach out to so many groups, because at the at 
you know, what he says is that, you know, we have a plan and we have a plan to deal with this and our plan is going to be a plan and it's going to collaborate and we're going to partner and, you know, come join us because we have a plan. When you ask for specifics on that plan and how exactly that plan is going to roll out, he says, don't worry about it. You know, we have a plan. So, I mean, that can be, uh, if you're not listening intently and closely, that could be very, uh, you know, heartening to say, oh, okay, this, this is a guy who has his steady hand in the wheel. Um, and if we're looking for a change, he might be the place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, I, when I introduced you and I said, you know, there, there are parties that will be looking to to build on their momentum, uh, you know, when Canadians head to the polls, obviously advanced polls coming up and then on the 20th of September. But of course, there's at least one party that's going to be looking to recover from a bit of a setback and, and make gains in a different context. Of course, I'm talking about the New Democrats uh, under uh, certainly a compelling and likable leader. I mean, Canadians en masse, when they're polled, it doesn't really seem to matter where they are in the country. People like Jagmeet Singh personally. He's, he's a personable guy. He's an attractive guy. He's a well-spoken and intelligent and articulate guy. People may not across the country have appetite for the policy, but. He's a likable leader. How would you characterize the campaign to this point? And can you see the NDP recovering from from losing, you know, almost half their seats last election? I think I mean, they're polling around the same place as they were, at, I think, at their height in the last campaign. Um, the debates, if you're talking about debates doing uh, having an impact, um, you know, in 2019, uh, the debate had an impact and, and Jagmeet Singh got a chance to really show off and showcase himself and, and bring a few more uh, people around to his side and had a better showing than I think some people were expecting. Um, now that that's kind of uh, his, his, his floor to build off of, um, I think that he... I think the issue with, with the NDP and, and Jagmeet Singh are people are still a little wary. They see uh, the NDP as maybe going too far in a particular direction when it comes to supports and, uh, you know, when people think about socialism and they get a little scared uh, and they think that that's what's going to happen if they if they vote for the NDP. Um, but they've done a really good job, I think, of of saying, you know, hey, everything that happened during the pandemic, all those things that that you relied on to get you through it, that was us pushing the Liberals to make sure that, you know, CERB was extended and expanded. And, you know, there were sick days added for federally regulated workers. Um, these are our ideas. And, and the Liberals have been kind of cribbing off of our, our homework, so to speak. And if you want more of that, you need to vote for us. And I don't know if it's going to fully resonate to the point that, you know, we're going to see another orange wave, but I think he's definitely doing better than people expected uh, when he was first even selected as leader of the party Mm. in 2017, I believe it was. Shrell Evelyn is our guest, managing editor of The Hill Times. I, uh, you know, yesterday had a a, a great conversation with uh, Grand Chief Arthur Noski of of Treaty 8, and we were talking, uh, you know, from an indigenous perspective about, I mean, Treaty 8, uh, the sovereign nations released essentially a scathing letter uh, to federal political candidates ac- across the board. I mean, they, they, they addressed all of them. And, and, and the gist of it is uh, where's the meaningful policy? Where's meaningful platform details when it comes to reconciliation? And, and Grand Chief got into it with us. People can find that interview just from yesterday's show from our September 8th show. We talked about how, you know, through the, the month of June and into July, uh, Canadians essentially and indigenous people in Canada were, were having like a difficult and painful national conversation 
uh, about the history of residential schools, about the current state of boil water advisories and, and poverty and a lack of access to education and, and health care and, and, and reliable Internet and a and hundred other things um, in First Nations communities across the country. And then y- you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, you know, th- there was this big groundswell where millions of people seem to care about it. And, and I don't know that political parties are reflecting that. I want to run a parallel storyline as well. I mean, we're in the midst of a, of a fourth wave of a pandemic right now. I mean, Alberta's disaster right now, 18 deaths announced just yesterday, 1,200 new cases. I mean, we're right back into one. And I'm curious if you think things like a national conversation on reconciliation or 18 months of a pandemic will actually have a lasting or tangible or real impact on changing voters' priorities. Do you think that this election could look different than any other in those two contexts? I think it could, um, but I don't think that the political will is there necessarily. Um, it's easier, I think, for politicians to to campaign on things like, you know, fiscal responsibility and uh you know, essentially sparring with other politicians, uh, talking about healthcare transfers and and things like that. There, I mean, it's absolutely right that there hasn't been a really uh, deep, substantive discussion on reconciliation throughout this campaign. And you know, it was in the grand scheme of things just yesterday that people were you know wearing their orange shirts and and saying they're going to you know have this really hard introspective. Uh, reflection on what's going on in the in the world and in the country and how we got here, but it's easily it was it was easily seemingly brushed aside. Um, the discussion at the debate last night only really touched on um, the ending of boil water advisories, and and every party has in their platform more or less um, some sort of acknowledgement of the fact that you know things need to be better and that there's going to be money for you know a monument in ottawa for uh survivors and victims of residential schools and and money to help recover uh bodies and and remains and memories but we haven't really seen anybody really talking about it on a national level there have been some pockets of discussion at campaign stops along the way. Um, I know Jagmeet Singh has been to uh, several First Nations communities and, and met with chiefs and, and held events with them. Um, the same thing can be said for uh, thinking about, you know, systemic racism. Everybody, you know, last year was saying, oh, wow, what a terrible thing to finally, you know, listen to what, you know, people have been, people of color have been saying in this country for for eons and decades about, you know, anti-Black racism, systemic racism, anti-Indigenous racism. Um, you know, the Prime Minister got up on Parliament Hill and took a knee, uh, the same as he did in, at, um, I believe it was Cowessess in, 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 in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Where's the discussion there? There, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. Um, you know, everybody was, you know, marching and putting black squares on their social media accounts. And now, you know, that's nowhere to be seen. These aren't issues that um, people think will resonate with voters or maybe don't poll as well. Um, so the politicians just kind of put them to the side and say, okay, well, if you like this, we'll get to it. I mean, some of them, the conservatives didn't mention it at all in Turkmenistan racism specifically in their in their platform um even i believe it was um 
uh, and there's polling just the other day. Uh, I think they said something about 12% of Canadians rank Indigenous issues as a top three issue right now, um, which is about half of what they did, uh, you know, a couple months ago. Yeah. So people are forgetting because people aren't talking about it to the same degree that they were. And, well, and I think like attention is fleeting, right? And and that's not like I, I don't say that in a way to dismiss the very real issues, obviously. Uh, but that's just a fact. We as human beings and the way that the news cycle works, our, our attention is fleeting. And also, Sherelle, you, I, I would imagine you'd agree with me that um, these are issues when we're talking about anti-black racism, racism, I mean, Islamophobia, uh, you know, the, the, the state of affairs right now with indigenous people in Canada and, 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 and the, you know, the, I mean, it's essentially the decades and decades and decades of oppression, uh, colonialism. I mean, these are very difficult and uncomfortable conversations. I saw somebody knock somebody else on their heels verbally the other day when they said, well, what are you going to do about reconciliation? This person was talking about land back. And I know I'm opening a bit of a can here and I don't mean to be dismissive, but the person said, like, are you going to be the first one to sign over your house? Like, what does land back look like to you people? When, once once the conversations land in somebody's lap or land in somebody's own backyard, that's when it starts to get difficult. And that probably includes party leaders and political parties. It absolutely does. And, and you know, we see that in how uh, various leaders approach certain issues like, you know, renaming schools or taking down statues. And they say, well, we don't want to rewrite history and we can't erase the past and, and we just need to move forward. But that's, that's on them to, you know, have that conversation. It's not on the people who have been, oppressed and and kind of flipping it back onto them and saying well you know you can't what what do you want to see you can't expect us to erase the past that's not really a, a good enough answer and i don't think anybody um who's in a position of you know political authority has really grappled with that that answer and how to move forward and it's easier just to say well you know we'll cross that bridge when we come to it uh, Sherelle, history made last night um, the first uh, debate in Canadian history where a woman of color represented a federal political party. Of course, talking about Annamie Paul, leader of the Greens, she's faced probably no greater opposition than that from within her own party. Uh, but but why don't we just talk about the fact that she was there? I mean, how significant was that to you? How significant do you think that was of a, uh, as a message to Canadians yesterday? The fact that she was there. Well, I think that was huge. And I mean, like you said, the first time you see a woman, a black woman on stage uh, among the party leaders. I mean, there's there's discussion about whether or not she should be there because the Green Party isn't polling, uh, you know, super high or what have you. But the fact of the matter is the party the Green Party met the criteria. She was invited to attend and she more or less held her own. This was a, you know, it was an important opportunity for Anime Paul to kind of really introduce herself to Canadians on a national level in a more positive light. She has made headlines and people have seen her and known her name, not for anything that I think she would want to be known for at, you know, at the helm of this party that's having, you know, this terrible bout of, of infighting and, and, and turmoil. And so, you know, and the fact that she was a woman as well, uh, among on the stage of men uh, also was important because she did bring, you know, and she said point blank, you know, will you let a woman talk when, when they were talking about childcare and the fact that, you know, childcare and long-term care, caring for, caring for elders and caring for the vulnerable often falls to women. And you know, she said, if there were more women 
at the helm of these parties, we would not be still having this conversation, you know, 30 years on from when it was first proposed in terms of childcare. It would have already been done because it would have been a priority. Do you think that uh, that uh, People's Party leader Maxime Bernier should be there? If, if Annamie Paul is there, I mean, people are saying, listen, the parties pull right around the same level. Uh, what are your thoughts on Max being there? I'd say they're complicated. Uh, I would say, I mean, the, the debate commission, the leaders debate commission has a set of criteria. Um, among those criteria, you have to have a member uh, and you had to have had an elective member of parliament. That was not the case. You had to have been polling above a certain level. I believe it's 4% um, just before the election was called. And that was not the case as well. Um, and then there is one more criteria that is escaping me right now. Um, but I, but he didn't, he didn't meet it. Uh, so he didn't meet any of the criteria to, to attend. And yes, right now, uh, the People's Party, based looking at some polls, are polling very well, far better than what some people have expected. Um, some have them as high as 9% um, in the polls, which is, which is significant. Does that mean that he should have a platform on that debate stage? This is somebody who, you know, is called... The prime minister, a, uh, I believe, it was a fascist psychopath, um, and you know, openly flouts and uh, uh, COVID rules when he goes to certain provinces. He was detained in, in uh, Manitoba, I believe, for doing so by the police. So, is that somebody that you necessarily need to give a platform to? I don't necessarily agree. Can I, let me ask you a question? This is a pretty direct question. Do you do you think that Maxime Bernier? kept a lid on the crazy for all the years that he was, you know, one of Stephen Harper's top operatives uh, within the conservative party? Or, or do you think that what we see now from Maxine Bernier, do you think it's performance art? You, do, do, you, do you think he sees an element of the far right that he knows he can grab and hold? What, what do you think's going on there? I think, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, he came within, you know, a hair's breadth of winning leadership of the Conservative Party. Very uh, close. Very, very close. <laughs> um, it was between him and Andrew Scheer on the very last, I believe, 12th or 13th ballot. So I, I would say that over the years, and I think it's fair to say he's perhaps become disillusioned with the with the status quo and with the process and and how things work um but he also has a team around him that does very well at feeding into uh some of the things that we're seeing and and you know we we knew fairly early on at least in the last election that you know some of the things that he was saying online and his tweets they weren't even being written by him uh, these aren't people, uh, these weren't necessarily his direct words. They were words of, of other people on his team who, who know basically what sells and what's going to reach into those pockets. And he's finding uh, these, you know, disillusioned populations and, and, and saying just enough of the right thing that they can latch on to his party by talking about, you know, freedom. And, and you know, you say freedom and everybody who, who feels as though their particular freedoms um, are being taken away, even though they're not usually, um, are, are, this is a home for them. 
And and that's what he's done since since leaving the conservatives and, and starting his own party a couple of years ago. Yeah. Let me ask you this in closing. Uh, we've been talking to Sherelle Evelyn, the Hill Times. You're an independent outlet. We're an independent outlet. Another independent outlet gained access by way of, of a judge in the federal court of Canada to accreditation for the leaders debates. I'm talking about Ezra Levant's rebel media. Uh, Prime Minister schooled one of their reporters last night, and, and we'll play that video in, in just a second. What, what are your thoughts on Rebel accredited at these debates? I mean, Rebel has been attempting accreditation uh, through the parliamentary press gallery uh, for years, and they are systematically denied over and over and over again. And um, so the really the only way that they are able to get into these debates is through a judge. There's the same thing that happened in 2019 uh, with them and uh, True North as well had to go through a judge to get accreditation um, because they are, at least on the rebels end, I don't, I can't recall if True North had to go through the same process this time, but they are seen as, uh, you know, being more activists, so to speak, as opposed to journalists. And, you know, it was a bit of a, I'd say what happened last night was a bit of a gift for, for both of them because the Liberals are obviously, you know, staunchly cheering on the Prime Minister for what he said about uh, to them last night. And obviously uh, the rebel is going to campaign on and, and raise money off of, off of what was said and, and as being, you know, told that they're too far out there and out in the fringe and, and not and misinforming people and they're going to, they're going to hit back and that's going to do, I think very well for them. It's going to play very well for them amongst their audience. Um, they've been deplatformed across a number of, a number of platforms and, and they have a number of, you know, legal challenges that they're fielding. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, to see another one coming. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, I, I mean, people need to keep in mind too. I mean, you, you've stated it clearly right there is, Sometimes the, the message doesn't need to resonate with everybody. Most times the message only needs to resonate with the base. That's the whole point. And if Ezra Levant is good at one thing, it's taking money from pensioners. And I think that that's going to be one of the results of last night. I think it is going to fuel that. I, I appreciate you taking that question, Sherelle. It's really great to have you on the show. Keep up the amazing work. You and your team at HillTimes.com. People can follow your team on Twitter at The Hill Times. Sherelle Evelyn, the managing editor there. Thanks for this. Thank you. You bet. As mentioned, yeah, it was, it was almost an 11th hour type scenario uh, with Rebel when a judge in the federal court of Canada ruled that the leaders debates commission. So it wasn't, it wasn't the liberals. It wasn't the government. It wasn't Justin Trudeau, but the leaders debates commission incorrectly said the judge denied rebel news network accreditation to the French language and English language debate. That's coming up tonight, nine o'clock Eastern seven o'clock mountain time, by the way, it was uh, Elizabeth Hanahan, uh, justice Hanahan's decision uh, hours before the debate last night, uh, meant that reporters were accredited to attend the debate. Uh, Rebels saying it was going to send up to 11 journalists to the event. You heard the voices of a few of them last night. Each and every Thursday, courtesy of our friends at Prairie Catering, we offer somebody an opportunity to eat your words. And this week, it was perfect timing. So last night after the French language leaders debate, 
Justin Trudeau takes a question from a rebel reporter. And here's how it played out. Hello, thank you, Mr. Trudeau. The only reason that I'm allowed to ask you this question is because today the federal court ruled that the government doesn't have the right to determine who is or is not a journalist. This is the second election in a row that the court had to overturn your government. Do you still insist on being able to make that decision and why? First of all, questions around accreditation were handled by the press gallery and the consortium of uh, networks who have uh, strong perspectives on quality journalism and the important information that is shared with Canadians. Uh, the reality is organizations, organizations like yours uh, that continue to spread misinformation and disinformation on the science around vaccines, around how we're going to actually get through this pandemic and be there for each other and keep our kids safe is part of why we're seeing such um, unfortunate uh, anger and lack of understanding of basic science. And quite frankly, your, I won't call it a media organization, your group of uh, individuals uh, need to take accountability for uh, some of the polarization that we're seeing in this country. And I think Canadians uh, are cluing into the fact that uh, there is a really important decision we take about the kind of country we want to see. And I salute all extraordinary hardworking journalists that put science and facts at the heart of what they do and ask me tough questions every day. Uh, but make sure that they are educating and informing Canadians from a broad range of perspectives, which is the last thing that you guys do. Which is the last thing that you guys do. I won't call you a media organization, your group of individuals, which is the most polite way to describe that group of individuals that I've ever heard in my life. Remarkable. Now, a person that I follow on Twitter by the name of Alexa Briggs called that clip everything we've wanted to say to the rebel in under two minutes. And I replied to Alexa, well, well, maybe not everything, but it's still pretty good. Trudeau took that question. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, you may have seen the video as well, denied back-to-back -back questions from rebel activists, simply stating he does not take questions from that group of individuals the, the racism the homophobia the transphobia the islamophobia and other disgusting attitudes and phobias perpetuated by this nasty platform should be more than enough for any political leader to keep plenty of distance to totally shut down any attempt to validate their presence in mainstream election coverage in fact, when a politician has or does grant interviews with Rebel, you should demand to know why. They're a stain on Canada's media landscape and they are a disgrace to the craft. Trust me, I've had my own dust-ups with this gaggle of goofs. And so it gives me great pleasure to invite Rebel's entire group of individuals to eat your words. The team at Prairie Catering wants me to remind you that they offer corporate catering in and around Edmonton for office meetings, in person or virtual. And of course, 
they can deliver. You can host business meetings, conferences at the stunningly beautiful Art Gallery of Alberta, executive boardrooms all the way up to a state-of-the-art theater. They can host up to 300 people. And if you mention Eat Your Words on Real Talk, they'll give you 20% off any rental space at the AGA for your next function, valid for rental dates in 2021. Eat Your Words presented by our friends at Prairie Catering. What do you think? Does it? Uh, that was an interesting take. That was an interesting take there from Sherelle saying, you know what? I, I think that that could benefit both parties there. It, it could benefit Justin Trudeau, his his assessment of of what Rebel Media represents, and he also thought it could probably play pretty well for Rebel. And I think that she's bang on in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, they can. T- you could just hear how that could be spun by bull by. Listen to me, both sides. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, both sides hoils. No, but Ugh. no, but you know what? Both sides uh, is a valid conversation to have here because we're talking about what is the impact of that exchange on both sides. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, what they're all about, making money, this is the type of thing that's going to play well. Hey, hey, listen, you know, this is what politicians say. They'll say the same thing. We fight. We fight for your voice. We fight for access. We fight for truth when in all reality, you know, what they're doing is is totally disgusting. What do you think about the accreditation? You think that reporters should be there? I know, I know a lot of people say, hey, but you know, what's the worry here? Why would it matter to accredit somebody regardless of their political perspective? I, oh, God. Um, the rebel is like gum that sticks to the bottom of your shoe. They just keep showing up in all the wrong places. Gum is uh, also a very polite one. That's yeah, one of the nicer things you I actually like said. gum. Not yeah. used gum, though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that the tradition of the press gallery managing its own accreditation is actually pretty essential to the way the parliament runs, like both on the provincial level and the federal level. And that, that you know, the idea is that the journalists sort of govern themselves and the, and the, the government stays out of it. And that's, you know, that was undermined by the fact that the rebel went and got a court injunction and they made an example of it. I mean, they showed up with as many people as they could. I saw one tweet that said, I, I think it was over 20% of the accredited journalists joining virtually, so over the phone line, were from the rebel. Like, the whole point of them being there was to be disruptive and to talk about themselves and not report on the debate. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm inclined to not talk about the group at all, this group of individuals, and I've held to it as strong as I can, but this is something that you just had to pay attention to. It was somewhat of a remarkable moment with Trudeau. I'm sure he was mentally prepared. I'm sure he was prepped by his team to take a question at some point, and I think that the answer would have been the same regardless. In other words, if they would have asked him about childcare, or if they would have asked him about carbon tax, or if they would have asked him about boil water advisories on reserves, his answer would have been the same. Mm Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm not validating this. I'm not humoring this. And I'm saying, I mean, Jagmeet Singh took a bit of a different approach, right? He just said, sorry, I'm just not taking questions from you guys. It was remarkable. If you saw it, it's it, it's not great audio. So we're not going to play it for our podcast listeners here. But I mean, essentially, Jagmeet Singh gets a question in person from a rebel activist. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not taking your question. Next question. It's a rebel activist on the phone yeah who says well you wouldn't talk to my colleague but what he goes he goes yeah like say see answer a see yeah. answer a not taking the question you can let me know what you think linda ray says trudeau waited a long time to let it rip james says they're doing exactly what journalists don't do which is making the story about themselves 
Wytrium says this group of individuals creates and stokes false division, also accusing everybody else of dividing the country. I mean, they are a self-fulfilling prophecy inherently. Hope says they had one question. That was the best one they could muster. That says it all. Uh huh. I, I think it's interesting when we look at what Trudeau didn't say and how he paused to show that, you know, I don't I don't even have words for you or the words that I would like to use. I cannot use. Um, and then to your point, you know, group of individuals. The thing that I'm struggling with right now is the idea that, you know, people are calling uh, things that are happening outside of hospitals protests. And I guess they're protests, but I feel like that... <laughs> That does a disservice to legitimate protests. Yeah. And, um, you know, other other language. And I know, like, I don't want to be the language police, but uh, we actually received an email yesterday talking about um, you strike, know, uh, strike, but also articulate. Oh, did, did you see that? I email? didn't see this one. So the idea that um, uh, we s- sometimes folks use the the terminology articulate when they're talking about people of color, black people or women saying that, oh, they're, they're so articulate. They're ah, so knowledgeable. Right. And the reason and the email pointed out that, you know, that can be seen as a microaggression. And maybe that sounds like like cry me big crack crocodile tears. Um, but the idea is that it's, you know, it's a surprise that women or people of color are are articulate yeah um so just a just a flag that the idea of like with the language that we're using whether it be protest or strike or articulate like these or group of individuals they all uh it all has power yeah yeah there sort of seemed to be you're, you're right there were there were these moments where you could sort of see where where trudeau's sort of picking like how how you know what level am i going to turn up the dial on the flamethrower on this one and and i think he held his tongue um, and I think that, I mean, I, I, I'd be curious to see what Aaron O'Toole might do, uh, faced with questions from rebel and, and, and I know for conservatives, this has been a big deal, right? And, and I think people across the country have looked to conservative leaders, including premiers, including, you know, federal party leaders and, and, and in past cases, prime ministers saying, are you going to sit down with them or why have you sat down with them? And, um, certainly it hasn't aged well. I mean, the, you know, United conservatives, I mean, I remember covering, the 2019 provincial election out of Calgary at the big four building. I was there with global news at the time. Um, I think that's the first time I've said their organization's name here uh, on real talk, but I was there on the desk with my former colleagues, uh, you know, Dallas Flexog, Danielle Smith. I was there with political scientist, Dwayne Bratt and right beside us was rebel media's table, right? With, with Kean and Sheila, everybody knows them. And then they were there with the blessing of the United conservatives and they had their whole broadcast going right there beside us. And it was, it was quite a sight because they had a lot of their fans gathering around there and their fans had a lot of things to say to me. And, and we had some extra security around our table. It's the first time I've ever had anything thrown at me while I've been operating in a political pundit role. I mean, it was pretty wild stuff. And, uh, you know, we're always curious to know where you land on this stuff. Obviously, we're, we're seeing comments here on the live chat. Uh, but if you want to take some more time and, and, and put some thought into in your mind, what should determine access uh, things like accreditation? What in your mind? defines or sets apart a credible organization you know this is uh the type of thing where we know that can really get people thinking if you want to sit on it 
and ultimately hammer out your thoughts. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can find us. That's where you get into our email inbox. And, and as, as we've just uh, sort of pulled the curtain back and demonstrated, uh, we get a lot of emails. <laughs> I didn't see the articulate one. I need to go back and find it. We get a lot of emails, but this yes. is a good thing. I mean, we, yes. have an, no we, we have an engaged audience, so keep it up. Keep flooding our inbox. It's absolutely perfect. Uh, before we get to the John Stewart of the Arab world, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I want to remind you that you have a chance right now to fly non-stop if Edmonton is your home city or if you travel if you'll travel to Edmonton's International Airport to get a great deal on travel right now Edmonton to Phoenix Mesa beginning September 17th you can fly non-stop I know for a lot of snowbirds that's going to be a game changer right you can park your money in the bank by parking your car at Jet Set. If you use the promo code REALTALK, you can park for $8 a day for any travel by the end of 2022. That's $8 a day for parking at the airport at Jet Set Parking for any travel by the end of 2022. You can book online right now at JetSetParking.com. They're locally owned. You'll love dealing with them. It's who I deal with when we travel. Again, the promo code REALTALK at JetSetParking.com. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that the Alberta Beef Roundup is back. From September the 10th, that's tomorrow, to the 23rd, you can get a whole hip of fresh Alberta beef custom cut by your in-store butcher just the way your family likes it. I know a lot of people look for chances to stock up your freezer with the best Alberta beef roasts and steaks and stewing cubes, even ground round. You choose how your in-store butcher prepares it. It's custom cut just for you. It's the tradition of Alberta Beef Roundup, and it starts tomorrow at Friesen Brothers, Alberta-owned and Alberta-grown. Oh, my God. Can you just show here? Can you just hand me the paper? This this will be funny for our friends that are watching this on YouTube. Sarah Hoyles does an amazing job prepping me for interviews coming up, and she, and she just puts this in front of me. She puts this in front of me as a as a bit of a heads up for our next guest. For those of you that are tuning in on the podcast, it, it turns out that Basim Youssef is uh, vegan. And I've now led into this interview with one of the biggest deals in media, with one of the most celebrated commentators on planet Earth by doing a big beef promo. Absolutely no offense intended, my friend. I did not know. But may I please extend the warmest of welcomes to Real Talk. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for so much for having me. Actually, I, when I introduce myself, I tell, hey, guys, uh, I'm Arab and vegan, which makes me scary and annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People always say, well, how, yeah, how, this is the oldest joke in the book. But, you know, how do you know someone's vegan? Well, don't worry. They'll tell you. Uh, have, you yeah. been, have you been vegan for a long time? Was this was that like a lifestyle decision, a health decision? It's obviously seven, none of my seven, business. Seven years. Seven years? Seven years. Yeah. I, 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 I identify as vegan now. <laughs> my brother has just begun the journey uh in their household and, oh. and and he's really committed to it but it's it's there to state the obvious some pretty big lifestyle changes it is it is i felt better and I, as a matter of fact other than the comedy and other than uh writing a children's book i actually started a, a website called plan b.tv it's the only bilingual website in the world that uh, kind of guide people into the plan-based diet in order to reverse your chronic disease. I'm not one of those militant vegans. I mean, you can eat. I mean, if you're eating steak and happy, good for you. 
I'm happy for you. But if you have some medical problems and you want to try something different, maybe you can try something different. That's that's what I'm gonna say. Well, I'm, I mean, people are gonna people obviously will will recognize you for for a number of reasons. Uh, your show, Alberta Meg, uh, obviously a celebrated. Uh, program, you, you, you know, John Stewart has has uh, shown great admiration for you, and you've appeared on his uh, Emmy-winning show. I mean, a show that just absolutely uh, dominated about fifteen years of, of network television. Of course, Time Magazine naming you to its most influ- influential list uh, about eight years ago under the Pioneers category. I mean, everybody's. I wonder how many people know though. If you know, one example here talking about the medical impact of diet. You started off as a surgeon. What a remarkable yeah, journey you've been on. Yeah, I know. I, I was a heart surgeon and now I do comedy. And because of that decision, many more patients are alive today. <laughs> yeah. So what happens? So you crack open somebody's chest one day and you just decide after 20 years of intense study and training that you've just had enough. How, how did you evolve into comedy? Well, we had the Arab Spring 10 years ago. And at that time, I was a regular heart surgeon doctor. I was about to... Uh, go to uh, a fellowship that I was accepted in in Cleveland. And then the Arab Spring broke up. And um, and, and I've been following John Stewart for a long time. So I was inspired by him when the revolution happened because, you know, the the, the state media uh, news was, was spreading all kinds of lies and fake news. And I know that you guys are getting to understand or know the term fake news now, but we had them for 7,000 years. We're a very ancient civilization. So uh, I started to do these like YouTube videos making fun of the uh, state-run media. And I didn't know it would go anywhere. I was just doing it. And then it just exploded. And then suddenly I'm having like TV offers to do to take the show on television. And, uh, it, it, and the thing is, that was all happening while I was still a doctor. So it was very embarrassing going in the morning rounds with the doctors and professors and the patients on their beds will be very excited to recognize me. And at the same time, getting very apprehensive. Is he going to operate on me? I, I mean, he's funny, but I don't know if he can stab me in the chest. So I uh, uh, eventually I left medicine and I just did uh, comedy full time. Comedy, uh, but in a way, no joke. I mean, in the sense that that you had, I mean, you people were to, to, to call your critics litigious would not do justice to the, what, can I say dozens of lawsuits that you faced? I mean, an, an arrest warrant issued. I mean, you, you faced a ton of blowback that that most people in comedy, I mean, aside from maybe I think of like Michael Richards stepping in one or Gilbert Godfrey joking about the tsunami or something like that. Most comedians aren't facing what you faced for, I mean, essentially for years. Yeah, I, I was actually arrested and interrogated for six hours by the general prosecutor. And it was the funniest interview ever. No, sorry, not interview, the interrogation ever, because. Uh, it, 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 they were trying to understand my jokes and they asked me to explain each one. So they were ri- ri- uh, reading transcripts of my, uh, my, 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 my episodes and I had to explain them why is that funny. <laughs> and at the same time, not illegal. <laughs> and it, uh, it was uh, one of the funniest things because uh, uh, it was, it's the most ridiculous thing to, uh, to try to interrogate a comedian. And then after that, I had uh, uh, each, each, each government that came in, that, in, that, in those years kind of uh, had a beef with me. And eventually my show was canceled a couple of times and I had to escape and I left Egypt and I came to America. And here you are. Uh, I should mention, by the way, that you're going to be uh, at the comic strip performing uh, three shows over the weekend in Edmonton, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. That's tomorrow and through the weekend. And, and people can get tickets online at the comic strip dot How did that change your perspective or how did that change 
your comedy when I mean, you know, being interrogated, having warrants issued, having people, you know, try to sue you into silence. Did it did it kind of deepen this resolve? I mean, right now, obviously, you got a smile on your face. Everybody gets the idea that it's just water off a duck's back. But I would imagine it wasn't all easy. It wasn't easy, but at the end of the day, that's more that's that's free material that you can work. I mean, as a in my stand-up comedy, I actually talk about the the interrogation, and it's I think it's one of the funniest parts of the show because I did I describe exactly what happened. I mean, like uh, like going in and what happened, and even though some of the police officers were trying to get selfies with me because it was a very popular show, and uh, it's. Uh, uh, I, I have been, uh, since I left Egypt, uh, what I tried to do uh, in the past two, three years was kind of uh, reinvent myself. So I'm doing now stand-up comedy in English, which is my second language, because I did, of course, a show in Arabic. And uh, it wasn't easy uh, to transition. Uh, I, I need to be relatable to the people who come to my show. I don't just do the comedy for the Egyptians or the Arabs who come to the show. So, uh, so the best show is like when the, when the audience is like split between Arabs and Canadians or Arabs and Americans. And it's it's quite relatable. Uh, I talk about my experience in Egypt as a doctor turned comedian, having all of that hardship. And then I talk about coming to America in the most ridiculous and unpredictable political uh, uh, times in the last four or five years. So uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's more of a personal journey. It's not like one of those like stand-up comes with just like, just like say jokes. It's a story. It's a think of it as a two act story. First act in Egypt and the second act here in America, and uh, I uh, I have enjoyed uh, touring with it, and I am very happy that uh, that pandemic is lifting slowly. The, the restrictions, and then and I get to get to Canada, and uh, hopefully Edmonton will not be the last stop. Hopefully, I will go to Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and Ottawa, and whatever you have up there. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You, you did pretty well, actually. Uh, it's, you know, I, comedians do such an amazing job. I always talked, you know, one of the things I think it, it, was, it was obvious, uh, but, you know, we're, we're uh, two days away from the 20th anniversary. It's hard to believe 20 years ago, September 11th. Uh, and you look at who was back. I, ha- I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> believe, mean, believe it or I mean, not. I, that- I, 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 I had, it's just I, yeah, I might I might have an Arabic name, but I. I well, I, I was I was asleep in the Cairo at that time. I mean, I guess there there goes this entire page of questions. But uh, I, 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 I digress. I thought I thought you think you've seen a tough interrogation before, Basim. Here we go, man. Uh, no, but you know, twenty years ago. But the first ones back, the, the first people talking, the first people addressing the nation, the the first people sharing their own thoughts and heartbreak and sorrow and anger were the comedians. Right. It was it was David, yes. it was David Letterman. It was the it was the comedians that were back first. And, and comedians have, have, I think, in so many ways uh, made difficult subject matter accessible. And, and, and that includes you. I mean, when you talk about the Arab world right now, I, I'm not sure that, that a lot of North Americans or for that matter, people around the world that want to talk about whether you want to talk about Canada selling, you know, armored vehicles to the Saudis, whether you want to talk about violence in the Gaza Strip and the conflict, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, uh, whether you want to talk about the Americans and the Canadians and other you know nations pulling out of Afghanistan. I mean, what a role you can play, I think, to, to not just drive discussion about that, but also bring understanding to it. The dynamics, obviously, very complicated in these scenarios. 
Yes. So you, you just mentioned 9-11. So after 9-11, there was a, a kind of a, a rise in Arabic comedy because there was a lot of racism against Arabs and Muslims. And uh, th that kind of gave way to a lot of Arabs and Muslim stand-up co co comedians like uh, Maz Jubrani, like Ahmed Ahmed, like uh, 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 afterwards, like Muammar. And so it's kind of like this was our defense to kind of like um, show people who we are without uh, being threatening. And right now, the way that I use the comedy is that um, there has been a lot of um, misunderstanding and hate and racism against immigrants in the past few years in the Western Hemisphere and in the world in general. And you you take these very heavy subjects and you talk about them in a comedic way and it kind of gets people to understand and to see a, a different point of view without being preachy, without being on the nose, but kind of like trying to be uh, funny, but at the same time thoughtful. And that's why the uh, my, my show is, it, it kind of touches on that, but in a, in a, in a way that is uh, accessible, not... Uh, not to like, all right, sit down. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Hmm. As you mentioned, you moved to the United States at, at uh, I mean, I'm trying to, do I say one of the more turbulent times in that nation's history? I mean, the nation has seen great turbulence. Yeah. Obviously, most nations yeah. have. Uh, but I think yeah. that, that the Trump era uh, must have been a, a <laughs> what word do I use? When I, when I lack a word, I say interesting. It must have been a very interesting time to oh, move yeah. to the U.S. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, how, how would you characterize what you've seen? Um, with, with with that president exiting the White House, is there is has there kind of been a sense of a stability returning, or do you see deep wounds as as someone who's who's recently, relatively recently moved there? Well, I don't think that uh, Trump will ever go away. I mean, if it's not him, it's at least his effect on the politics. And I think uh, uh, American politics is being put to the extremes, pulled to the extremes more and more. And I've seen that happen in the Middle East. How? Uh, the extreme right, whether religious or military, kind of uh, can have a, a lasting damaging effect on the country. And uh, thank God there is like a good critical mass of people in the United States that still believe in the, um, in the values of democracy and understanding and, and coexistence. And I, but again, just like the rise of the extreme uh, uh, politics and the extreme views, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit worrying. I mean, I live in California. It's a blue state, and you think that you're safe, but now we have a recall, and I don't know the the, the front runner. If in case the newsroom is being uh, recalled, is a uh, is a TV host that uh, sorry is a radio host that doesn't see that uh, slavery wasn't bad. Uh, that he sees like slavery wasn't that bad at all, and uh, it was okay, and it was good for 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 America and for the people, and it was vilified. So you, you can you get the rise for these uh, opinions. And uh, it's worrying to see how will that affect the politics going on. You've got uh, your book, uh, Revolution for Dummies, uh, out in 2017, uh, laughing through the Arab Spring. And, and, I'm, and I'd love to hear about this digital series that you're hosting, The Democracy Handbook, a digital series oh. for Fusion Network. That, that 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 was like uh, five years ago. That was when just I moved. That was like one and done. <laughs> so, one but, one and but, done. Did you did you figure it out? You solved it for everybody. That was it. Your work was oh, done. Yeah, yeah, I did it. I, I I just put it there. The manifesto is there. I don't know like why are people are just like trying to look for uh, think tanks and pay that much money. I I just put it there. But I I moved on. I actually I did another book. I I wrote another book. It's called The Magical Reality of Nadia. It's actually a children's book that I wrote for my daughter. 
And uh, uh, we are in talks now with different platforms to turn it into an animation series. And it's, it is for children, but at the same time, we talk about the, the stuff that we talk about as adults, but we put it in, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a way that is magical and funny and children's friendly. And uh, I enjoyed writing that book. And uh, Nadia, my daughter, uh, surprisingly liked the book, which is uh, very hard to impress her. That's a that's a solid endorsement. I mean, if you're able to achieve that uh, endorsement, that's no joke. Um, you've you've she, she even agreed to having her picture taken with the book. Wow. I have to pay royalty for her now. Sounds like a smart girl. Yeah. <laughs> she, how old? Is, how old is your daughter? She's growing up in the U.S. now. Obviously, has that been a transition that she's been happy about? Yeah, she's nine. Uh, Nadia, she's my oldest. And my youngest is Adam. He's been born here, so he's my anchor baby. So I'm not going anywhere. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're growing up in the United States and California. And uh, uh, that's our life now. So how do you, I mean, I would imagine that, that you know, a culture that you grew up in and that you, you understand uh, to, to such a degree that your commentary uh, has been so celebrated how, how do you pass that on uh, to your son, Adam, in particular, that will be born and raised in the United States? Like, like we alluded to earlier, I think that there's a real lack of understanding, myself included, when it comes to understanding the Arab world. There just seems to be kind of a breakdown where a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their minds around some of the basic cultural elements. Yeah, well, I mean, of course it's different, but when you when you raise your children, first of all, you want them to be connected with their roots, but you also want them to be assimilated in the community here. Mm. Uh, I have to say that many immigrants, especially Arab immigrants, I'm gonna, uh, many of them, they always live in limbo. They don't consider themselves 100% American, and then they have the nostalgia to go back, and when they go back, they can't adapt anymore because they have lived so much in the West. So you find people that have been here for 20, 30 years, and they don't feel fully American, and they can't feel fully Arabs. So I, I think I do. I took the decision that, like, you know, we are in the United States now. This is our country. This is where we're going to live. This is where we're going to contribute to society. And I, I try to and, and, and we're all and the, the, the beauty about countries like America and Canada, they can always say I'm Chinese American. I'm Arab American. I'm Lebanese Canadian. It's uh, it gives you that kind of duality and it, you can embrace both culture. And it is uh, it is important for the kids to understand that they come they are the product of two culture, which means that when I ra- raising them, uh, it, it's going to be different than how I was raised. And I need to understand as a parent that I, I, they do not have to um, go through what I have gone through in Egypt, or I don't have to uh, uh, deal with them the way same way that my parents dealt with me back in Egypt because it's a different country, it's a different place. I have to adapt to that. So it, it's been a learning experience for me, too. So um, it's it's a, it's a work in progress. Acknowledging that you're now living in the States, but obviously I'm sure you're still, you know, intimately familiar with, you know, w- with Egypt and, and, and the entire region there with regards to the media landscape, with regards to what, you know, I might just lazily describe as freedom of speech or freedom of expression, whether you're a, a comedian or a political pundit or an author or otherwise, do you see an evolution? I mean, is, is change happening or, or, or might people still be surprised at some of the suppression that occurs? You mean back in the Middle East? Yeah. Well, here's here's what I think. I mean, uh, a lot of people look at what happened in the Arab uh, world, uh, the Arab Spring, and they they look at it with frustration, thinking that it failed. I don't think it failed. Yes, politically, 
the uh, the people. I mean, politically, as yes, it failed, it didn't it didn't reach power. It didn't. Uh, people who uh, who took to the streets maybe ended up defeated politically. But there was something else happening at the same time. I believe that a revolution is not just like a, a political movement. It starts by questioning. And I think what we had lacking in the Arab world for a very long time is questioning everything, questioning things that are taboo about religion and politics and society. And now we have conversations between people that was never been uh, that would never been possible if if the revolution happened. So yes, maybe politically it's not the like a utopia. It's not like uh, uh, a, a good uh, function democracy. Uh, a lot of dictatorships are still thriving in the Middle East. But the conversations between people, especially young people, has evolved a lot in the past ten years. And you know, it has to start somewhere. It it is a revolution of the minds. It's a revolution of the way you think, and it's the revolution of the way that you don't accept things that are just being handed to you, and you need to question everything. So that that is the big change. Hmm. What's it? What's an international story that I mean? When when it comes to writing material, uh, when it comes to what's capturing your attention or what's getting the gears moving between your two ears, what's a story that that you're keeping an eye on that you think you can glean some pretty good material from? Oh, all those American intervention in in the world. It's I feel I think it's it's uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know. Uh, I mean, and it is funny that how they interfere and they can topple all kinds of governments, but they completely fail to do it to themselves. Uh, the January 6th was like a, a fiasco. I, I feel bad for the Americans. I mean, it was very frustrating to watch the pundits say like, oh, my God, look at that. I mean, the crack at the capital looks like a, a coup in the Middle East. And I said, guys, listen, when we have a coup in the Middle East, it works. <laughs> so maybe you do need immigrants to help you understand how to carry on a successful coup. Maybe you don't need us for diversity or understanding coexistence. Just we're going to guide you to do a goddamn good coup <laughs> because that was a freak show. And I'm very disappointed at the level of disorganization that, that the, the America, I mean, just it's very frustrating to see like a superpower failing at what it does best to itself. It is very, very very, very frustrating. I feel like when this podcast goes out later today, you may earn yourself another six-hour sit-down with investigators <laughs> based on your offer to help organize the successful coup. Or, or maybe I will have a call from QAnon. It's like, all right, how do you do a coup? Yes. <laughs> what are? I will be a QAnon coup expert. Yeah. What, what, what might be your rates uh, for organizing a successful coup? Moderately successful? The sit-down? Do you lead it? Do you simply advise? You could have different levels of sort of support. Oh, I, I mean, I, I can definitely work on totally different levels of the organization, kind of like, you know, tell them to understand the idea and, and how to organize. I mean, for, for, for once, I mean, you don't go uh, to attempt uh, doing a coup while you're wearing fake uh, Vikings horn. I think that's a giveaway. I mean, that's 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 exposed. Uh, you cannot just like have a, a bunch of diabetics with Trump shirts uh, walking, strolling. That's 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 an obstacle. And at the end of the day, you're just ending up with a bunch of Karens shouting 1776. That is, that's, again, very, very, very frustrated at the organization and the level of uh, commitment that, uh, now. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm not amused. <laughs> I'm like, I will give you this. This is the first time I've laughed about January 6th. I'll give you that much. So congratulations there. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> yeah well it's it, hey how do you answer that question to people when, when when do you get past like when are you one day past too soon 
Like we're not even oh, at the one year uh, mark yet. Are you are you up there telling jokes about January sixth already? I mean, you're telling them here. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, like, I, sometimes I say a joke about like the pyramids, and 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 I I don't want to like burn the jokes. People have to come to my show. Yeah. And then uh, I I say it, and people say, oh, it's like what too soon? Do I have to wait for another seven thousand years to tell this joke? Come on, guys. <laughs> so it's <laughs> too soon. It will always be too soon, and we are there to make it not soon enough. I love it. Uh, Basim Youssef uh, has, has appeared. Uh, as senior Middle East correspondent on The Daily Show. He's hosted the International Emmy Awards Gala, uh, the star of an internationally renowned documentary, Tickling Giants, that tells the story of his show, Alberta Mag, translates to the show, of course, and, and, and you can find him. You can hear his work on stage live starting tomorrow. That's Friday, September 10th, and through this weekend at the Comic Strip at West Edmonton Mall, and you can learn more at thecomicstrip.ca. That's where you can buy your tickets. Have you ever been to West Edmonton Mall before, by the way? Do you have any idea what you're I getting into here? I have never been to Edmonton. Oh, no. buddy. Oh, I mean, buddy. I haven't been to Edmonton. Yeah, like you're, you're, I'm so excited. You're familiar with West Edmonton Mall. Like the, the footprint of this mall is like the footprint of a small city, right? You you will at some point get lost in the mall. I, I hear it has a lot of history. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> typically it's like an and it's an ancient it's an ancient piece of uh, it's just an ancient monument that's been standing there for almost 10 years yeah yeah at least well at least 30 so so it, i'm sure it'll impress uh, impress someone that's that's only before been privy to exploring such lousy historical monuments like the pyramids um i'm sure <laughs> but but this is in a way our pyramid and uh yeah yeah excited yes. to welcome you to edmonton i know that you're gonna have packed houses obviously hey it's been awesome to have you here on the show we obviously adore the work thank that you, you so do. much and i hope and i and i and i genuinely hope that you can come to the show i would love to i mean i mean seriously I would love to host you and be my guests in the show. Uh, a Sari producer has been in contact with me. Uh, anyone from you or your team, I would love you guys to come to the show. It would be an honor, seriously. Well, that means a lot to us, uh, and it means a lot to us that you were here on the show today. So thanks for doing this, uh, Basim. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. Edmonton, come to my show. There you go. Tomorrow, right. Saturday, Sunday, thecomicstrip.ca. Basim Youssef. Yeah, those are the first jokes I've heard about. January 6th, that's for sure. You got a bunch of diabetics and Trump shirts. You got a bunch of Karens yelling about 1776. Unbelievable. There was a parallel conversation going on in the chat about veganism as well. So that was, uh, I appreciate the heads up, Hoyles. That was a good one. I was, I had to make the kind of the quick snap decision. I'm like, should I read one more spot? Should I create a bit of a buffer there? And I thought, nah, I think he can probably, probably fare just well there. And fantastic stuff. That guy's got a huge follow, like millions of followers on, on social media and stuff like that. A real treat to have him here on Real Talk. Thanks for everybody that checked that out. And, and thanks in advance for sharing that interview. Of course, these interviews are possible. The show is possible because we have the support of amazing sponsors like the teams at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park that want to remind you the all new Pecan Pie Blizzard Treat is bound to be a crowd favorite with its crumbly brown sugar pie pieces. I don't I dislike reading these things when I don't have one in front of me. Like I could eat like 6 of these it's things. It's torture is what it, it is. It is torture. Crunchy pecans, creamy caramel, their world famous soft serve and a whipped topping. It's the perfect fall treat. 
plus the pumpkin pie blizzard treat with their world famous soft serve real pumpkin pie pieces garnished with that whip topping and nutmeg a fall weather favorite you can find them at the dairy queens in palisades Nemeo, newcastle westmount y gardens and baseline road i had a chance yesterday to lunch as a verb to lunch with the founder and the president at Park Power, Chris Kozowski, and uh, what a guy. To hear the story of this local provider of internet, electricity, and natural gas, how they got their start and how they're driven by a customer service model. I said, what's one thing you want me to tell Real Talkers tomorrow, Chris? He says, remind them, if they're in the province of Alberta, they have a choice where they get their electricity. They have a choice where they get their natural gas, their internet. You can compare rates today at parkpower.ca. And a reminder, the promo code 2021-REALTALK is going to get you $70 off your first bill. $70 off at parkpower.ca. A shout out to the team at Local Waste as well. This is a group that, of course, has been providing bins. It's garbage and recycling management, essentially, is what they figure out for businesses, but also for residential scenarios. Maybe you're doing a renovation. Maybe you're cleaning out. Maybe it's an estate-type scenario. If you need a bin, you can reserve one today at localwaste.ca. You make sure you let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. And, of course, Real Talkers, I don't think I have to remind you, tomorrow, Local Waste presents Trash Talk. It's your emails. You getting whatever you need to get off your chest, off your chest. By way of a shout-out to talk at ryanjesperson.com, make sure you label it Trash Talk. Of course, that's presented every week by the team at Local Waste. We have an amazing conversation coming up in about 15 minutes time with uh, a member of Canada's women's sitting volleyball team. Caitlin Wright just back from the Paralympics, a fourth place finish. Their goal was to finish top four. I can't wait to connect with her on that. But before we wanted to dive into our most recent question of the week, we left this one open for two weeks on purpose. We wanted to get a clear sense of where real talkers were at when it comes to the federal election. And just about a thousand of you chimed in. As a matter of fact, 990 surveys completely. Uh, you can always find our question of the week at ryanjesperson.com. Just go to the top of the page. This week's question of the week, it's open right now. We already have a thousand respondents chiming in on it. We're looking forward to a big response because we're asking you about provincial measures when it comes to COVID-19, the $100 gift card scheme and everything else. And so please take a few minutes to complete that. But this one, this one was all about the federal election. Let's take a look from the top line report. This is put together by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. Here are some of the highlights. Here's what Real Talkers told us about where you're at uh, as the campaigns continue. Your prediction on mass for this election is a liberal minority. Another highlight here, Real Talkers told us 39% of you that calling an election now was just political opportunism. But, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, 39% of you said, yeah, it's, it's opportunism, but it's a normal move by a minority government. More on that when we get into some of your comments. Here's another high-level observation, and this was one I was most interested to see. The biggest election issues for real talkers. You didn't have to pick just one. 65% of you told us that climate change was a huge issue for you. 65%. Next on the list at 58% COVID-19 response. And just over half of you, 51% of those polled, told us that the economy and affordability is a big issue 
when it comes to how you're going to choose how you vote. 36% of you told us that you first consider the individual MP when you're deciding where you'll cast your vote. And then 27 of you, just over a quarter of you, told us you then consider the party and the quality of the potential prime minister. I'm not going to ask my colleagues here in studio how they're going to vote. I think it's an inappropriate question. We don't want to muddy or murky the waters. But I am going to ask you, where would you fall on that side? I mean, the debate, are you a party first person? Are you a leader first person? Or are you a a local candidate first type person? How do you determine? It's changed for me. The last riding that I lived in, I was always, um, I felt like I didn't have to choose between the two. And now I'm in a new riding and I feel like I need to do party first. Party first, then candidate. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I'm torn on this one. Uh, Again, it's like, I mean, the way our system works is it's supposed to be candidate first. It's supposed to be representative democracy in your local riding. And and interestingly enough, I'm swinging a little to the other side of that fence. Like, I used to be really party and leader first and... You know, there's uh, there's a couple of candidates that are like actually like well-known community members in my riding right now, and I have you know some real personal belief in them. So it, it's it's kind of seesawed back and forth a little bit, and I think that it's also you know being here in Edmonton and being here in Alberta and. Uh, you know, sort of being this this giant blue island in the middle of Canada, uh, it's it's a little bit empowering to try and sort of break with the stride and 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 look at an individual and say, you know, I want I want that person representing me in Parliament. I want you know the the that voice to be the one that stands out from the crowd. Yeah, I'm going to go on the record. I'm going party first, um, but I think Hoyle's kind of like you. Uh, that has changed for me. In, in, in past instances, I voted for individual first. Uh, sometimes I feel compelled to vote party first. And I think that there, there are a bunch of dynamics at play. I mean, ultimately, that's a personal decision, you know, and, and people can swing back and forth. I mean, I voted for different parties in federal elections. I voted for, you know, yeah, me mean, too. you know, and I, and I would have even said that as a young man growing up, I would have said I voted for tons of different parties. I voted for the progressive conservatives, the reform, reform the Canadian Alliance, the conservative party. of Canada. I voted for a whole bunch of different parties. That's not what I'm talking about now. I'm talking about I'm the or type of person. Are you? Uh, what's that? What do you mean? Well, I, you Speak don't want, freely. No, I'm just like you don't want to. Oh, pay. you're just creating the mystique. Yeah, like you don't want to say that you're one way or the other. I'm or just saying my vote's up here. for grabs. That's my right. vote's up for grabs, and I'm not guaranteed to vote the same way now that I did in 2019. And and 2019 was not a guarantee that I would vote the same way that I did in 2015. And I think it's good. I think that you know, Sam, you talk about this big blue island, and you and you you take a look at how the conservatives fared on the prairies. I mean, they dominated. Uh, last federal election, they ran up the score. I mean, that's when people talk about it. it's typically an American phrase. But people talk about the the popular vote. It's in it, the conservatives won the popular vote, so to speak, because they dominated Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and then narrowly lost some ridings elsewhere as well. But but I like to believe that a candidate has to campaign and compete for your vote and not take it for granted. I saw a comment on our live chat earlier today. I apologize. I won't be able to cite who it was that said it. But someone essentially said that it's, it's not a good scenario. It's not a good situation when political parties can essentially write off entire provinces knowing that they're going to win there. And so they'll send their candidates elsewhere. 
I, I, one thing that I, I've just observed in the last couple of weeks too is is the way the campaigning is going locally. And I'll say that because like in the riding that I'm in, we have a conservative incumbent. Haven't heard from him whatsoever. I've been door knocked once by the NDP, by the candidate herself, yeah. and twice by the liberal campaign. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Is that the type of thing that, that resonates? I mean, would, would the fact, let's say you've made up your mind hypothetically, let's take conservatives, liberal, NDP out of it. Let's just say hypothetically, you've made up your mind, or at least you think you have on how you're going to vote, but that candidate or a representative from that candidate, someone from the campaign does not show up at your door. Your door does not get knocked on, or at least you don't think it did. You've checked your cameras. You haven't seen literature in the mailbox. You're pretty sure they didn't even show up at your house. Would you punish them by changing your vote? I might. You know, it's I, I like to see them put the effort in. Absolutely. I like to see them actually go and try and get the votes and connect. I mean, the job of an MP is to be the local representative in Ottawa. So come represent the local. This is why in Edmonton Mill Woods, people are all up in arms about Tim Upple. But he doesn't even live there. He lives but, in Ottawa. Well, yeah, I mean, he's not the only one either. But yeah, that, that'll be an interesting race there with former city councilor Ben Henderson running against him. Uh, of course, Amarjeet, so he did before. Now he's running to be mayor of Edmonton. A lot going on here. It's tough to keep an eye on. Would you potentially punish a candidate? Or a party by withdrawing your intended support if they didn't knock on your door? Does that is that important to you, Sarah? No, not at all. No, the they're huge. Like the writings, the writings are ginormous. Yeah, like I, I when I'm driving around the city or biking or whatever, um, you know, you see, oh, this is still that same riding. Like when I'm across yeah. the river. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would. Uh, I mean, I think I, 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 I don't love when a candidate doesn't show. I get all kinds of conspiracy theories. Sometimes I'm like, they're not showing up because they know it's my house. See, I get annoyed when show- I get all these kinds of conspiracy theories in my mind. But- I get annoyed when people show up at my house. I'm like, what? <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah, fair enough. That's also a fair point. Yeah, I'm not sure everybody loves having their door knocked on. Right. I think I mean, it's it's part of the democratic process. It's part of the uh, the election. But I don't know. They always seem to knock too, and I'm wearing a towel and nobody needs to see that. So real talkers told us you figured that the outcome of the election will be a liberal minority. That was 65 percent that said that. Uh, and, and the team at Y Station split this up for us, which is really cool, because as, as mentioned, we wanted to run this for two weeks because a lot of things happen on a campaign. And we wanted to see how opinions might change or might evolve. So so 65% of real talkers are predicting a liberal minority again. We'll call that two-thirds. But this is interesting. In week one that we ran the question, the first week we ran the question, that number was 63%. In week two, the number jumped to 71%. More people in week two thought it would be a liberal minority. You know Why? Because in week one, 23% of people, one in four, thought it would be a liberal majority. And in week two, that 23% dropped to nine. It dropped to 9%. In other words, over the course of our question of the week, those two weeks that this question was open for you to chime in on, fewer and fewer and fewer people believed that the liberals would be able to achieve that majority government that, of course, they desperately want. Now, it came to the conservatives. Nine percent of real talkers believe it'll be a conservative minority government. That number jumped significantly in the second week of the question. Eight percent. I know these are a lot of numbers, but eight percent of you in week one thought that would be the case. Fourteen percent in week two. One percent of real talkers believe we'll see a majority conservative government and three percent chose other a two party race as perceived by real talkers. And I I think that that's probably an astute 
an accurate observation, but only time will tell. It's interesting, though, when you think about uh, polls, because, you know, some people say, ah, polls don't matter. But the polls, what's being reflected in that, what we're what we're looking at from real talkers yeah. is very much reflective of what we're seeing in the polls where it's where it started with big lead by liberals. And now it's now it's kind of, you know, they're going and they're evening out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then we had our guest earlier this week saying, you know what? Uh, strategic voting doesn't work so I don't care if anyone says it's a two party race get out of town yeah, you gotta, who you want well, you gotta earn votes right you gotta earn votes and uh, Stephen Carter was saying this uh, he'll be joining us next Friday on the 17th uh, as as part of the three-headed monster that is the strategists. But Carter said yesterday, he's a great Twitter follow. I know he's blocked a bunch of people. He doesn't apologize for that either. <laughs> but if you're not on the blocked list, he's a great follow. And he essentially said, vote splitting's not a thing. Don't let anybody tell you that it is. The candidate that wins a riding is the candidate that earns the most votes. Everybody starts at zero and you got to earn the most votes. We asked you if you thought this was necessary. And I'm so grateful for those of you that answer our question of the week and you take the time you take the time to write in your answers. You take that extra minute to share your thoughts with us. Boy, are you ever doing that this week on the COVID stuff? Keep it up, real talkers. One of you said historically minority governments last you know, two years at the most. Do we need an election now? It's hard to answer. Is this a play out of every minority government, regardless of parties attempt to gain a majority? Yes. Another one of you said this is pure political opportunism and every party would do this. For sure, it's to take advantage of high polling numbers and general positive feelings, but I don't have a problem with that, said one of you. Another said minority governments in Canada are, are historically very short-lived, and I don't think that having an election during a pandemic is dangerous given how much we've learned over the past 18 months and the fact that mail-in voting is well-established. I don't think it's anything new. And with regards to the cost of an election, says this real talker, democracy is not something to pinch pennies on another says I, I get that we've been through hell and i get that you know we need to vote on how things went but i think it could have waited until spring a fourth wave was predicted kids aren't vaccinated and i fear that this election could further fuel this wave we asked would this perceived as a so-called early election or maybe i could even say an i shouldn't do this i shouldn't change the wording of the question and then provide answers that's a little bit of a that's poor form but if we were to say an early election, that could also be perceived as an unnecessary election, right? Would that influence your vote? In other words, would real talkers punish the liberals? Another says, I'm not happy with a, an early election call, but I'm waiting to see how campaigns roll out and who screws up the least. Another says, it has made my choice clearer on one front and harder on other fronts. There's no clear issue this election. Just a bunch of posturing. Just a bunch of blah, blah, blah. The party I normally vote for doesn't impress me. They don't have a strong candidate in my riding. Even though I won't, says this real talker, I do sometimes consider not voting. Another says, while I'm generally a liberal supporter, I am truly annoyed that this election has been called. For one thing, taxpayers cannot afford to pay for an election at this time. There are more pressing items to spend tax money on, including COVID, health care, and schools. The top issues, we told you climate change was number one at 65%. 65% you included that among your priority issues this election here are some of the other top ones. Public health, COVID response in particular, 58%. That's pretty high. The economy, 51%. That's lower than I thought. 
especially when we included the economy and affordability. That includes, obviously, things like housing, other barriers, the sort of idea that you got to pay to play when it comes to society. And we attack that from a whole bunch of different angles when we go through the regular editorial process of this show. 42% of you, it was just outside of our top three, 42% of you included Indigenous Affairs and Reconciliation as a top priority this election. I wonder what that number would have been two months ago. What was the number? 42%. That's still pretty high. It's t- it's top four. Yeah. It's top four like Canada's women's sitting volleyball team. Uh, Caitlin's <laughs> going to be joining us next. Do you like that? Top four. Medicare was 21%. Taxation and government spending just 20%. And I wonder if that indicates that, that real talkers believe that spending over these past 18 months or so is is in the context of of almost any other election cycle or almost any other tenure of any other government, a total outlier. I mean, how are you going to compare the deficit over the past year and a half versus the deficit from 10 years ago? It's apples and oranges. Just 15% of real talkers included affordable housing. Just 12% of real talkers included jobs. We've talked about Afghanistan and how it's not a sexy election issue. And really, quite frankly, I hate to put it this way, but quote unquote, nobody cares about issues like Afghanistan when it comes to election issues, not period, just election issues. And it was reflected in the results of our poll when three percent of the thousand people that responded, three percent included foreign affairs as a top priority. And that's generally speaking. We didn't specify Afghanistan, foreign affairs, three percent. That's what I was going to scratch my head about. It was like, well, if you just say Afghan, not just if you say Afghanistan and leave it at that, then, yeah, I could see it being very small piece of the pie. But that surprises me that foreign affairs, big picture, three percent. Right. Wow. We asked you the top three issues that need to be the focus of this election. And we've just run through some of the numbers, but. Many of you took the time to, again, fill in the blanks and share your extended thoughts with us. And I want to get to one in particular. One of you wrote in and said, I'm saddened that disabilities are not on your list, nor on any government's list. And I wanted to read this note from Chris Henderson, uh, chief strategist at Y Station, included in the top line report that all of our Patreon supporters have received in their email inbox this morning. Chris says that's fair criticism. He says, we'll keep that in mind in future surveys. And thank you for speaking up. And I echo Chris's sentiments. Another one of you said affordable housing is important, but federal meddling is not helping. The net worth of a lot of Canadians is in their home, and there's a lot of debt secured by high home values. So creating affordability while not popping a debt bubble is tough. Municipal governments need more power to solve this with local solutions. You look unimpressed with that take. I agree with that take. I agree. It doesn't work to impose the same federal policy to address sky-high housing prices in Vancouver, Toronto, and Saskatoon. It doesn't work for Saskatoon. It might work for Vancouver and Toronto, right? There needs to be, in my opinion, more local focus on either managing or navigating overheated housing markets. Because you want to have young people, young families, people that are moderate income earners, people that have barriers to entry like we just talked about. You want them to have access to the opportunity to housing. 
At the same time, this comment is true. The net worth of a lot of Canadians is in their home. Well, that's what we're told. We're, we're told to like buy a house. It's really secure. Yeah. It's, it's the way to go. It's, you know, that can be saving for your retirement. Now, what, why I kind of like my face got all kind of screwed up is, <laughs> is the idea that affordable housing programs and making sure that there's affordable housing um, like in different neighborhoods, that to me is part of the equation it's not just what is your mortgage in other words it does require significant federal investment yes i 100 percent agree with you there i don't know that anybody would disagree there i mean that's where the coffers open oftentimes opioids was another answer that was recurring clean drinking water for first nations and universal basic income and an end to houselessness another comment and i appreciate this one mental health Audience members said we're going to be facing a crisis of mental illness over coming years as a result of this pandemic, the resulting economic downturn, and all of the fake news that's swirling around in people's heads these days. Says I'd vote for any party that offered to introduce government-subsidized psychological services, addiction counseling, and psychiatric pharmaceuticals for all Canadians. Pharmacare. Pharmacare. Yeah. And you see the NDP hammering the liberals on that. Seniors care, vaccine passports. Here's an interesting one. One of you said you want to see a bigger focus on the economy specifically to slow down economic growth and move toward an eventual plateau. Says this will take time and we'll need to get started on strategies. Fascinating stuff. And we we sure appreciate those of you that take the time to chime in, we we asked again, as mentioned, do you vote for a specific person in your riding, like a member of parliament, or do you vote for the prime minister? Do you vote for the party? One of you said, I uh, vote for whatever party or candidate has policies best suited to serving the need of the greatest number of Canadians without jeopardizing the needs of others. Another one of you says, if I'm iffy on the party, I look at the leader in their inner circle. And if I'm still undecided, I'll go solely based on candidates. Another one of you said, I'll vote for who does the least mudslinging. I hate to be such a cynic on this, but I do not believe for the most part that members of parliament approach their job in Ottawa with their number one priority to represent the constituents in their riding. I don't think that that's how party politics are working these days. I'm not saying that MPs don't work hard. I'm not saying that they don't field letters and emails from their constituents. And I'm not saying that they don't put in in many circumstances an immense amount of work in their writing. However, when it comes to votes, when it comes to how the House operates, when it comes to how positions that parties take and how votes are whipped, I'm not convinced that MPs are voting I mean, when's the last time you saw a prominent member of parliament vote against a party line based on what the constituents in their riding were telling them? If people can find examples, I mean, we'll turn this into a bit of a party trick. If you can give us a good example, I'd love to hear it. Didn't you talk about with uh, with Heather uh, from the NDP? Heather going, McPherson. Yeah, yeah, going against the NDP. That's right. Voting against the pipe, uh, the, the pipeline ban. Yeah. Uh, she voted again. Yeah, that, that's a great example. Hoyles. Freaking Hoyles. <laughs> I'm like, this is a tough assignment. You're like, were, were you, you were always the person in the classroom that like you handed in your quiz first. Excuse me. Yeah, ex- yeah. I'm already done. I'm and like, I'm the guy in the back that's like, you know what I was? I was the guy that was like, I need to sit closer to Hoyles next time so I can just kind of. No, I was with you. Drop my pencil and just sort of, oh, she went B on that answer. <laughs> B on multiple choice. Again, RyanJesperson.com right at the top of the page is where you'll find our question of the week. And we'd love to have you chime in on this one. Uh, we ask you about 
the COVID response by the Alberta government, including the $100 gift card scheme, the 10 p.m. liquor curfew, and so much more. It takes about three minutes to fill out, and it gives us a great sense of where Real Talkers are at. So thank you in advance for that, my friends. Before we talk to one of Canada's celebrated Paralympians, I want to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy has solutions ready right now for you to achieve your sustainable energy goals. They have Tesla certified solar installers, journeymen or apprentices that are right now completing projects, residential, commercial and industrial in BC, Alberta and beyond based out of Edmonton and Kamloops, BC. Here's one of the things I love about Kubi. They do the paperwork for you. So that there's government subsidies or there's certain incentives, including one for agricultural producers. They know all about that stuff. So you don't have to do the digging. All you have to do is give them a shout. You can find them under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find the team from Eden Landscaping. At landscapeedmonton.ca, you can see examples of what Mike and his team have been doing over the past number of years. They've been earning the return business and the referrals of their customers. I asked Mike once, what's the biggest indicator to you of customer satisfaction? He said, well, obviously referrals and return business. They've been doing projects for some of their customers on a number of different homes, following the families on their journeys, bringing outdoor spaces to life. Of course, they work around the calendar year because they do the design work, too. It's a one-stop shop at Eden Landscaping. Well, our next guest is just back from representing her country at the Paralympic Games. She's been a member of Canada's women's sitting volleyball team for seven years. Just back from a fourth-place finish, her second games after competing as well for Team Canada in Rio in 2016, Caitlin Wright, the warmest of welcomes to Real Talk and congratulations for an amazing showing at the games. How are you feeling? I mean, has 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 your energy subsided a little bit or are you still riding a bit of a wave right now? Oh, I'm definitely riding a bit of a wave. Um, I'm pretty I'm pretty jet lagged still. I'm still feeling it. So um, a lot of a lot of emotions. When did you get home? Are you weeks. are you just back? Yeah, I just got back Monday on the sixth. How would you characterize so the experience as you as you as you compare it to to your experience in Rio de Janeiro? How was this one? It was awesome. Honestly, it was really different in comparison to Rio, just because of COVID. Obviously, that changed a lot of things. But um, Tokyo, they they really pulled it off. Like if if there was any country that was going to run a games during a pandemic, like it would be Japan, and they did an amazing job. You uh, had had divulged to us uh, as a team that your team had set a goal of a top four finish and you achieved that goal. Now, obviously, I I know you head over there looking to win gold, obviously, like every other team. But but how how do you sort of manage expectations? How do you set those goals? And ultimately, what steps did you and the rest of the team take to achieve them? Um, For us, like, I mean, yeah, obviously, like you said, every team goes out to get a gold, but. Um, we're realistic. We knew when we were in Rio that we finished seventh um, and that we had a lot of building to do from then. We we don't have a centralized program like a lot of the other teams do. So all of our athletes are spread out and we come together monthly. So um, we did a lot of training at home throughout the pandemic and and we knew that that we just needed to to be realistic in, in our goals. Can we can we talk about this this T-shirt? My understanding is that your coach 
<laughs> I, I designed these t-shirts. You knew that I was going to ask you about this because every everybody yeah. was talking about them. This t-shirt that you're wearing that reads, let's make the Paralympics a household name. How did this come about? Can you tell us the backstory? Yeah, so um, my coach had made them. Like She asked us probably a couple weeks before we left if anyone would want one, and we all kind of said yes. And our goal was initially just to wear them kind of around the village um, just to kind of grab some attention. You know, everyone talks about the Olympics and everyone knows what the Olympics are, but you ask them about the Paralympics and they think it's either the same thing or they, they don't know what it is. And the truth is it's not the same thing. Um, the Paralympics were designed to be equal to the Paralympics, but in a lot of ways they aren't. So we were just kind of going out there hoping to just kind of spread the word, um, and it ended up becoming like a lot bigger than we thought it would after we found out that our matches weren't all going to be streamed. So we just really tried to kind of ride the wave of, of the shirt and it worked out really well for us. Can, can you describe for us the impact of, of learning that your matches weren't going to be screened, that, that people, including big fans of yours and big fans of Team Canada, wouldn't even have an opportunity to see you in competition? What does that do to a team? What did that do to you? Yeah, we were, I mean, there was a, it was a, a lot of emotions. We were really mad. We were angry. We were sad. Um, I think overall the general consensus is that we were just frustrated. Like, you know, after Rio, we had found out the same thing that our matches weren't going to be streamed, but our families were able to travel. They were able to come see us play in Tokyo. That's not the case. There were no spectators. Um, so we were really relying on streaming to be able to, you know, show our sport to, our families, our friends, our fans to Canada. And then we find out again that it's, it's not happening. And, um, you know, you always hear like, this is the the largest stream of Paralympic sports. And while that's great, it's in our eyes, it's still not good enough. If you can stream, you know, 98% of the Olympics the equipment's already there. Why can't you stream 98% of the Paralympics as well? Um, so it was just really frustrating. And we just decided that it wasn't good enough and that we needed to, to demand more. Did you get a sense? I mean, with the t-shirt campaign and then the subsequent, obviously it, it, it really caught on on social media and it got a lot of people talking and, you know, our goal is to ensure that those conversations continue. Did, did you get a sense that the tide might turn? I mean, with regards to fans of sport internationally, with this more on their radar, with the Paralympics becoming a household name, uh, so to speak, people learning more about the athletes. Do you get a sense that it might be different next go around? I think so. I, I really hope so. Um, we were really surprised with how much traction like this picked up. Um, we were kind of just thinking, you know, it would be mostly friends and family writing in emails. Um, but, you know, then we were getting requests from CBC and um, and OBS themselves. And um, we had athletes from other countries, teams from other countries asking, you know, what we did to to get the streams because they were facing the same issues. So it wasn't just isolated to us so um i think based off of the overwhelming response like i really hope that it encourages um the international paralympic committee the international olympic committee and obs to really reconsider um you know what they deem as popular um it's really hard when our sports don't get the same type of coverage like how, how do you build off of that you know if if, if para athletes in your country can't see you how are they supposed to know your sport exists to even be able to know that it's available for them to try? 
So it, it goes beyond um, just wanting, you know, your friends and family, like obviously you do, but it's also just about building awareness um, and, and letting, you know, other para, the para community know that there is more if, if they want it. Would you like to see the Paralympics running parallel to the Olympic Games? Would you like to see them running in, over the same two weeks or so? I don't know if it over the same two weeks would would be ideal. Like I think it the setup of either having the Olympics first or the Paralympics first, um, you know, works. But I just think you know celebrating the Paralympics as much as the Olympics are celebrated would be, you know, getting the same media coverage, getting the same um, opportunity even for sponsorship um, would be amazing. You know. I think like it, it opens up a lot of questions like Paralympians don't earn any money for any medals that they make for team Canada. Um, yet, you know, in a lot of un- other countries they do. So, I mean, not that anyone is competing to, to earn money, but, you know, having that extra money definitely helps when you are working full time, balancing school. Um, there's athletes on our, on our team that are business owners, their mothers, um, yeah, they are going to school. So it definitely helps offset the cost, the time that goes into training. Hmm. Kim's watching right now live. She says she had a chance to try sitting uh, or sit volleyball at a tournament her girls were playing in at the University of Alberta. She says it is so, so hard. <laughs> how did you, for, how did it first get it on is. your radar? <laughs> like, how do you, I, I like we were talking earlier, we were kind of joking about it being like volleyball is hard enough. We can't even imagine sitting volleyball. Uh, when did you first start competing? And, and, and I mean, your journey obviously takes you to the highest level of sport here. Um, what were some of the really significant okay. mile markers along the way in your athletic journey? Um, so I started in 2014. I had just come off of um, a surgery for a bone infection that I had and uh, a girl that I had shared a hospital room with after I had my initial amputation um, had reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to try sitting volleyball. And I was mortified at first because I didn't have a volleyball background. Um, so I, I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a shot, but please don't expect me to be any good. Um, she was like, it's okay, just come give it a whirl. So I went and, uh, I actually just really fell in love with it. It was, you're just like immediately encompassed in this, in this community of, of athletes that in our sport, most of them are amputees. So it was nice to be around other amputees that kind of just understood everything that I was going through. Um, and yeah, so I went and tried it and I ended up falling in love and they asked me to, to come back, which I was shocked about, but, uh, yeah, so I ended up going from there. And since then, um, we competed at the 2015 Parapan American Games where we qualified for the Rio Games. So that was the first Paralympic um, Games that I was at, uh, was Rio in 2016. Actually, that was the, the first time we our team had qualified for Paralympic Games. So it was a first for all of us. And then uh, we were in Worlds in 2018. And then the Parapan American Games in Lima in 2019. Um, and then we had a last chance qualifier for the Tokyo Paralympic Games, which was Halifax. So those have kind of been our main competitions so far. So you're telling me that you had never played the sport in 2014 and <laughs> no. less than two years later, you're competing at the Paralympic Games. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's was, wild. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. It was 
it was a lot. Um, I had to learn everything from scratch, you know, did a lot of research online, had to learn the rotations, what the positions were called. Um, I'd only ever played in like high school gym class um, just because of the nature of my disability before that. I wasn't able to do any high impact sports. Um, so yeah, my, our assistant coach at the time, she's now our head coach, but she literally sat me down on the floor and we sat against the wall and just like practice serving and hand contact, like the most basic of skills. Um, and yeah, they've really put a lot of work into a lot of us and well, all of us, but me, especially at that time, because I couldn't even serve a ball over the net. So, uh, yeah. And now you're of, and now you're uh, and... now you're one of the stars of the fourth ranked team in the world. Uh, <laughs> not too bad, yeah. my friend. Not too bad. So, you not know, too bad. <laughs> there, there's a lot of people uh, that are obviously inspired by your story that are inspired, quite frankly, by the Paralympics. I mean, I just I, I mean, there are so many individual every individual there in competition is, in my mind, just absolutely remarkable and, and so many different backstories and details i think that would just really resonate with so many people whether they're persons with disabilities or not um in between the games though you, you painted a pretty clear picture you've got you know entrepreneurs on the team you got moms on the team you got people that are battling so many uh, different pulls on their time and their commitments and we know that you know th th there aren't a lot of canadian athletes that are getting rich at what they're doing what's something that Canadians, either at an individual level, at a community level, or even at a federal government level, could do to support Paralympians in between the games when there's not as much discussion around international competition? Oh, man. Um, honestly, a big thing is is awareness. Like the, the athlete pool for, um, for parasports isn't high, especially in Canada. So like our, our recruitment is low. Um, so having, you know, the awareness, um, out really helps, you know, if we can get more athletes joining, then it definitely, um, encourages more, more, more monetary support from the government. Um, just to know that the sport is growing, that there are people that are interested in playing that want to play that want to represent their country. Um, and then I think just knowing that um, there is, you know, still a lot, a lot of opportunity for growth, you know, like we've, we've done a lot over the past few years to really uh, cement our spot as, as a top team. Um, I think before that, you know, we were 16th, so like we've really had to build. Um, so I think honestly, the big thing is, is awareness and just knowing that there, there is a demand for parasport. There are people that want to play and, and funding those things is really important. Well, I mean, I just think, I mean, the way that you've inspired Canadians by your and your teammates' performance on the court is one thing. I love how you and your teammates drove discussion around the prominence and the prioritizing of, of the Paralympics. And we're just thrilled at the result. Congratulations. Uh, can't wait to see what you and your thank teammates you. <laughs> achieve again in the future. And, and despite the jet lag, thank you so much for making time for us here on Real Talk. It's really nice to have you on the show. No problem. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Thanks, Caitlin. Congratulations again. That's uh, Caitlin Wright. Uh, who made her country proud. Boy, did she ever. As a member of Canada's women's sitting volleyball team, uh, just back from a fourth-place finish at what was her second Paralympic Games in Japan. Fantastic stuff. On the live chat, 
Tiana says, you know, for just one year or just one time, can you imagine if the Paralympics were hyped instead of the Olympics? If only the Paralympics were streamed. Now, I know that people are going to say, well, money wise and money makes all the decisions and that would never happen. But but let's just let's just hypothesize here. Tiana says, and, and what if every time the athletes were to win or to place or to medal, they were paid? Joan says that'd be fantastic. Hope says we have to stop treating our athletes like volunteers. They're professionals. The dedication, the commitment is a full time job and we should pay them well. That's always a big debate, isn't it? Like, to what degree should the federal government or provincial levels of government fund athletes in their endeavors? You hear these Olympic athletes, Paralympic athletes, or, or even athletes like oftentimes in women's professional sport, right? You know, professional women hockey players or, or whatever the sport may be uh, that, that are dedicating, what, six hours a day to training and everything, but also working full-time jobs to pay their bills or hustling, doing what they can, whether it's speaking engagements or corporate endorsements, whatever they can to, to fund their own training out of pocket. And there are so many, and we're talking about the athletes like Caitlin that, that achieve that access to the, to the highest stage, to the most elite level of competition. Think of all of those as well that are grinding, dreaming of getting to there. Right. That are the amateur athletes that aren't yet at a point where people even know their names or recognize them on the street before they wear those Team Canada colors. Right. Even when they do wear the Team Canada colors, when you're carded, when you actually are like a carded athlete in Canada, you're not making you're not rolling the dough. Nobody's getting rich. Nope. I mean, there are a couple, you know, not Paralympians that I know of that are rich. I think endorsements, so to speak, but endorsements are big for athletes. Obviously, like Andre Degrasse, the sprinters, obviously making good dough. I mean, you know, some some Canadian athletes do well, obviously, Uh, but but the the vast majority of them rely on fundraising and the support of private boosters and community leagues and and all sorts of organizations, charities, nonprofits that do amazing jobs. Always cool to check in with someone that's just back from a world class event like the Olympic Games. We wanted to remind you, I know that a lot of you with kids, uh, well, they're back in school and maybe your back to school routine is looming now as well. We're past Labor Day and into the fall. Canada's online university is on demand and available right now at AthabascaU.ca. World-class accredited online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. They have so many different options on how you can better educate yourself, better understand the world around you, better prepare yourself or equip yourself for a competitive job market. You can check out their programs and courses, go through the admissions process, and better understand how AU works by visiting them online today at AthabascaU.ca. Our friends at Westworld Computers want to remind you that their Back to the Future school and work sale is on right now. That means when you buy a new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld, they're going to give you up to $100 to spend on accessories. If a new iPad Pro with Apple Care Plus is in your sites, then you'll receive $50 of instant savings on accessories. And don't forget that you can drop the price even more by trading in your current Mac or iPad. When you trade in or even recycle your well-loved Apple product at Westworld, no matter how old it is, 
At the very least, they'll transfer your data for free, make sure your new product is running properly and that your personal information from your old device is securely removed. You can learn more about what they do to earn return business at the independently owned Westworld computers by visiting their website, westworld.ca. And finally, a big shout out to our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I told you about that Ram 1500 classic Warlock that I drove over the weekend. Beautiful rig. I'm back in the Grand Cherokee now and loving it, of course, because it's a perfect fit for what our family needs in the city. This is what they do at these dealerships. They find what you need for what you're doing on an everyday basis, and then they make sure you get into the one that fits your situation best. You can browse their inventory. You can contact their team, including sales questions online via live chat via the links on our website, the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Tomorrow's show, of course, it's been a short week with the long weekend. That means that Friday is upon us. National Post columnist, Ottawa Bureau Chief John Iveson will join us. I'm looking forward to that conversation. A panel of young Canadians, what drives their vote? And best-selling author Seth Radwell, 20 years after 9-11. Trash Talk's coming up, too, on what promises to be a great addition. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 